This is Created the Podcast. This week's guest on Created the Podcast is Alice Zimmerman. I recently met Alice and heard a very tiny bit of her story and knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. She is joyful, full of love, and loves Jesus. Today, we talk about civil rights, growing up in a secure family, and forgiveness. I hope you enjoy hearing from her as much as I did. And with that, here's the show. All right, Miss Alice, thank you so much for talking to me today. I am so excited to hear more about your life. It's my pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Okay, so I think the last time we talked, we did not talk a lot about your childhood. You did talk a little bit about your parents and mm-hmm. sort of the foundation that they set for you guys. So what, what were your parents like? Well, first of all, I was the youngest of three children. My sister was 12 years old. My brother was 14 when I was born. So you can imagine with that age difference, I was always teased about being the oops, the oh. one that planned for. <laughs> but my parents always told me that I was the only one planned for. I was special. So that made me feel real, real good. So as long as I can remember, my mom and dad were teachers. Um, my mom started out in, the, I guess, elementary, then junior high, and then, then she went into the college. My dad was a college football coach and chemistry teacher. So I had teachers in my family. I think that makes a difference, right? Coming from educators, did they really emphasize you all being educated in like doing well in school? Absolutely. From day one, from first day in first grade, um, I knew I was going to go to college. That was not a question where I didn't know, but with a sister and a brother who had also gone to college, you know, they just let me know that's the path that you take. There's no other path. And this could not have been the norm back then. Like no. for people to know from the first grade, I mean, cause I hear that and I can say the same thing when, I mean, I actually literally remember being in first grade and knowing I'm going to go to college one day. It's like not a negotiable, but in that time period, that was not the norm. I mean, schools weren't like they are today. No, no, not at all. And it's interesting because my first grade class was on the campus of South Carolina State, Felton Training School. Now, that school, my sister and brother also attended Felton Training School. And from South Carolina State to Claflin, I mean, I could walk through the fence. You know, it's right next door. So I would walk from my school to, to Claflin to my dad's office, which was in the chemistry building. And all I can remember being little and talking about test tubes, you know, as students were doing their experiments, I'd go home and tell mom, I saw some test tubes and I saw this and I saw that. So that was something that I grew up with. Yeah. So it was, it was almost like that was the norm. It was just, this is just what we do. So that's really interesting to think about. So you grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina. My husband went to South Carolina State. And so, which is a historically black college or university. And so how did that work? Because back then schools were, they were segregated. And then, and then how did you get connected? Because I've heard this story of you integrating a school. So when was that? Well, it's interesting because Claflin always had an international faculty. Um, You know, so I was exposed to that. Um, We had Chinese, we had Korean, 
uh, we had whites from the North. So that was a norm as far as I was concerned. But then when I looked further at my school, when I got to high school, of course, there were no whites, no white teachers, no white students. And I can remember um, growing up in Orangeburg and seeing the signs colored and white everywhere. So you learn that early on. And the one thing that really impressed me, I, I remember in the 50s, they were having demonstrations in Archburg. And I can just remember seeing students swept off their feet with water hoses and dogs chasing. And that just sort of stuck, stuck in my mind. Um, my mother tells me about the time we went shopping, Bell, Bell Cuts and downtown Orangeburg. And I wanted to know what was the difference between the white water and the colored water, because there were two fountains you know, near each other. One said white, one said colored. So she let me taste the water from the white water fountain and then the colored water fountain. And I said, it doesn't taste any different. By the time we finished that, there were police there to arrest her because she had let me use the white water fountain, which was illegal. So, you know, early on, little things like that just sort of stuck in my mind and I remembered them. So that when I got older with the demonstrations in Orangeburg in the 60s, I was very active in that. And my husband, who was student coordinator, sort of had me arrested many times. I can remember being in jail and asking one of the college girls, I said, I just don't understand. Every time I get on the picket line, I'm arrested. They said, oh, you need to talk to Zen. My husband was then called Zen. So when I got out, I went back to the church. I said, said, what is up with this? Every time I'm on the picket line, I'm arrested. He said, well, I know your parents support it. Your dad will bail you out and I can put you back in. I thought, well, (laughs) wait a minute. I don't understand this. So wait, he arrested you? He, He was responsible for putting me where I could be arrested. How? How did that work? Well, as the coordinator, then he needed to know who could be where, who could take what. And so he knew that nonviolence, I would not fight back. I would say nothing. I'd just be arrested. So he put me in strategic spots so that knowing that I'd be arrested, that that would be okay. And I'd get bailed out and then he could put me back in. So, so I mean, this is interesting because this speaks to the strategy of the civil rights movement that a lot of people don't talk about of Absolutely. having to like know, you know, those things because actually I had, I heard somebody preach about this a couple months ago that, you know, a lot of times we just see the pictures and we see the theatrics, but we don't see like the strategy and the purpose and the, um, and that part to it. So that is, that is very interesting. So a whole planning team with the Orangeburg movement because it was a nonviolent um, demonstration. So they needed to make sure everybody understood what that meant. So the, the steering committee made sure that when the students participated, that they knew what they should do and what they could not do. So that was something that was, as you said, unusual. But, you know, you see demonstrations nowadays and you just, you just go and demonstrate and know, know what's going to happen. But in our case, we 
knew what was going to happen. We knew if we went to certain places, we would be arrested. We knew that we were just to be arrested. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. We'd be put in jail. We'd get out and we'd do it again. I just think of the bravery of this. And I, and I, I guess I think about, even from an African-American standpoint, were there a lot of different personalities around this sort of, did you have like groups of people who are like, I'm not getting involved in this at all. And then you had people who were sort of like, I'm always involved. I'm in the front of the line, which sounds like you. And then, or did you have people who were kind of like apathetic? What was that like balancing that part? All of the above. (laughs) Every group that you name, we had them. Um, You know, there were some kids who wanted to be involved, but their parents didn't want them to be involved. There were some who said, want nothing to do with it. And there were others who said, this is what I want to do. I am going to do it. And my husband was one of these who parents didn't really want him to do it, but he did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to go back because that just blows my mind because I didn't see this that going that direction of you purposefully being arrested because you knew what was going to happen. I think there's a lot of power in that. If you really sit and think about that, like you can handle this. So therefore, that's why this keeps happening to you. You know, I think there's like a metaphor for that maybe with the Lord, <laughs> you know, like of what, what you're capable of. Um, that's it. Nope, yeah. What you can have. Yeah, but then I also go back to this water fountain story of, so what I hear when you tell me that about your mom and she let you drink from both water fountains is one, that's absolutely a teacher because it's like, I'm going to give you real world experience so you can see for yourself, the water tastes no different. These are social constructs, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's what this is. But then two, her bravery, the bravery. I mean, it's just kind of like, okay, well, we're going to be arrested. Do you... (laughs) Did she think about that? I'm sure she did because, you know, during the early 50s, when the first demonstrations in Orangeburg, um, she was involved with that too. She, with the students, would demonstrate and would be arrested. So she knew all about that, knew what was, you know, what, what was to come. But um, it was interesting. Her thing was she was going to teach me, let, let me see it for myself. You know, you want to know about this water fountain is here. You can taste it and tell me if you see a difference. I tasted it. I looked at it. I said, Mom, it looks like the same water. It tastes like the same water. So she said, well, it it is the same water. So I said, well, why is it a colored water fountain and a white water fountain? And that was, you know, part of the introduction to segregation for me. It was separate. That's the way it was. So I have a couple things there. So one, the first thing I think about is the trauma that has to happen for Black people today in, day out, see this perpetuate, perpetuating in society of like, how do I explain to my kids this thing that makes no sense? It's not just, but it's everyday life. There's no running away from it. That's what I see. I think for me, as a parent who probably too much tries to protect my kids from what is harsh or what is hard, that is the hardest thing for me to reconcile. How do you think your parents dealt with that as parents? And and how did you kind of reconcile that as a kid? It all goes back to education. Um, 
he needed to know what happened before, you know, because my, my parents went through a lot more than I did um, in their lifetime. But they would always talk about these things, talk about what happened in the past, talk about what's happening now, talking about how it could be changed. So, you know, even with your kids, you can talk about what happened in the past. It might not sink in for a while, but just keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. Because we have done that with our son. Um, uh, when he was in high school, his English teacher called and asked me, would Rodney let you read his journal? I said, I'm sure he would. And so she said, please read it, because I don't think there, there's not much truth in what he's writing. So I read it, and it was my experience and his dad's experience during the Civil Rights Movement with our arrests, everything that happened. And so I called, I said, that was accurate. That's, that happened in our lifetime. So she said, I, it's hard to believe it's, it's the truth. So that's a part of education too. And so for the people listening, I really want them to get a picture of the fact that I've only talked to y'all two times and my mind is already blown. <laughs> I haven't even talked to you for very long. So I can absolutely ha see how someone, anybody, black or white, could read that and be like, oh, no way. Didn't happen. Didn't yeah. happen. But then even, but as a white person or a person who really is sort of uh, put to the side, you know, it's kind of not really a thing for them on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. I can see them being like, oh, absolutely not. Like, that, that, that didn't happen, but it did. And I think that's what... <laughs> That's what blows my mind about your story. Um, the sad, sad thing is, it's still happening. Yeah. Perform. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. What, what do you think? What is the form now today of 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 those kind of injustices from what 50, 60 years ago? What does it look like today? Um, my husband's just written a book on systemic racism, and he takes it from all aspects from the church, society, um, you name it. And it's interesting to look at each of those phases to see how it was, how it is today, and just hoping that we can change it in the future. But, you know, it's one of those things that's still with us. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um you know, you can look at the drug crisis, you can look at just about anything and how if you really dig into its origins, race really did play a role. But I think sometimes it's easier for people to believe that it doesn't and that it yes. really is however hard I worked, you know, if I made right choices and, you know, that is almost self-protective for us because if we believe that, then life is pretty easy, right? It's like, I make the right choice, then it's good. I make the wrong choice, then it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, but to go back, I get, you know, I grew up hearing the, probably not as much as your son, because I, I don't have people in my family who are just that close to it. Um, but it's not absolutely odd for me to hear stories like this. Um, but it is one of those things, back to the trauma part that I was talking about, of how do Black people as a whole heal 
from the very foundations of their lives being being formed by those kind of things. I go outside of my house and it's just apparent people with black skin are not seen as 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 good. And I don't have opportunities and I don't have many people education. Um, what does that look like to heal and to go forward? One of the things that I have found because I can go back to my hometown where all of this happened is I can see for myself if there have been any changes. For example, when I went back after the high school was desegregated, I won't say integrated, it was desegregated. When I went back and saw how it had, I guess, changed from a few to all the white what was the white high school had so many blacks that you know you wonder what happened the whites went to private schools because they could afford that they pulled them out of the public school system put them in the private school system and then you know what does that mean you still can't learn from each other because somebody's there Mm -hmm. so that's that's one thing and then recently we went back to a church in our hometown where both of us had been arrested trying to go to worship service. Um, And it has completely changed. We were welcomed with open arms, um, even though we were only two there, only two blacks at the church, but you could see the the difference. And I, I don't, I guess it's the times, I don't know what more to say about it because kids today, well, I can't say all, but most of them want to know what happened. They see what's happening now, but they don't have the connection of what had happened before to bring it to where it is today. I would I would agree with that. And I think there's a lot of people that have holes. Um, fun fact, when I was in middle school and high school, I don't even know how this happened. I ended up on the Black History Rainbow team. And so uh, a lot of gaps, I feel like, that I had were filled there. That is not even something, my personality does not lend itself to go join any sort of rainbow. But it was good for me because it filled in a lot of holes. Like, I think I knew enough, right? But I did, but it is. It's one of those things of if you don't have perspective, then it's hard to reconcile what's right in front of your face. Right. And That's then right. you could create a narrative that may really not be accurate based on what happened. That's might, absolutely. Yeah, it might just be accurate on what on what you know what you feel or what you think based on based on what's going on. Um So with that, I think that's another question I have around. So how did faith play a role in these things that you're seeing surrounding you and in these conversations with your family? Like, how did your faith uh, play a role growing up? It started early. My grandparents lived right next door to me. The first stories I heard were Bible stories. And, you know, with Sunday school and church, I was taught that I am a child of God. We are all children of God. 
Um, so that when I saw a white person, that's a child of God, according to the Bible. So there should be no difference. Um, and as I went through life, um, still hearing my parents tell, remind me that I am a child of God. Um, you know, I carried that with me. Um, everything that I participated in, I prayed before I went out to do it. I mean, even with the desegregation, we had prayer at home before I went out to the bus stop. Everything started with a prayer. Um, we knew that God was with me when I was doing these demonstrations and when I went to desegregate the high school. I had the faith that he was there. He was not going to let me down. I could know that I'll be coming back home. So faith was the, I mean, faith was the, the thing that got me through everything. Yeah, I think that's huge. Did you, even to think about you praying before you went and when you went, you said knowing, knowing that God is with me. Did you have a sense growing up that this is what God had called you to? Now I say that, yes. But if you'd asked me that earlier, I probably would have said no. But I think now, in, in retrospect, I know that that's, that was my purpose. So talking to you and your husband, I am just struck by this lightness to you guys that you've gone through so many things that we haven't even all touched on yet but y'all just seem to have this lightness to you of doesn't matter who you meet whatever race whatever people that you're trusting and it's okay and you're not holding a grudge because I sh I'm sure you you've been around people as I have who they could never it's just like a stick in their craw it's like a I don't like these people. I've been through too much. I've seen th too much. How do you guys live? Wh why do you think there's that difference? Thank you, Chapman. He's pointing to me. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is because with my growing up in my family, um, I was exposed early on to a lot of things. For example, during the summers, I would go with my dad who taught at Dartmouth University, and that was one black among all these whites. So it was a norm, it became a norm. It was a norm when I got out of Orangeburg, but not when I was in Orangeburg. So that was something that I had trouble pulling together too. Why is it okay there, but not okay here? Mm -hmm. So the, that exposure definitely helped me. Um, summers, we always travel somewhere, either with my dad working or my mom in summer school. Uh, I remember one summer I went to Boston University with my mother. She was in grad school. And here I am, seven years old, in the dormitory. And so the dorm mother made it clear to the other girls that I could play the piano whenever I wanted to since I was taking music. And I thought, hmm, this little black girl is over here playing the piano at eight o'clock at night. What are you doing? <laughs> but, but that was something that happened. And, you know, that was the exposure. Every summer I had a different experience. 
And I think I'm sure that helped. I'm sure it sounds like your parents just really just cultured you guys. Like they exposed you to so many things. They, they saw maybe everything as a lesson for you. And so, and then the other part to it, and I think we alluded to this last time is it sounds like y'all had security from them. Like you knew you were safe. You knew you were supported. So therefore you could go out in the world and show up and know that I'm an okay person. And that's, that's a part of the history, you know, knowing the history even of my parents. I knew that I would be safe. I knew what they went through, they survived it. So they were going to take care of me. That was something I didn't even have to question. Um, and I think it's very important that kids know their parents and know the parents' history so that even the kids can help them change. But it's a two-way street. That's really good. And I, I mean, that makes me think about to kind of bridge this into adoption, foster care, taking care of kids that maybe aren't born to us. Um, one of the biggest things that we see at even the adoption agency I work at, but also in any kind of mental health field is attachment. And it's this idea of secure attachment versus insecure attachment. And kids that are secure, and most of it is really formed when you're really little, you know, one and two years old, zero to one is the biggest, is the biggest time period for, for it of really being able to go in the world and say, I am, I am deserving of love and I can give love to others. But there's a big part of the population that have insecure attachment and can't show up and do that. And when I think about all the things that you're telling me about on a day-to-day basis that so many African-Americans experienced, if they have insecure attachment and they don't feel like they'll be safe with their parents, I just can't imagine what the trajectory of their life might look like as opposed to what yours does. Well, I think we're seeing that today because there's a lot going on, even with the kids that we have, um, the 25 that we have. Um, Each kid is different, of course, but you can see when they come in and we tell them that I love you, that it takes a while for them to grasp that. What does that mean? Love for how long? Love for today and that's it? No love forever. So that's something that's really a a key. So let's talk about that. So you guys have cared for 25 kids, right? It's 25 in total. So how did that happen? How did you have 25 kids come live with you? Well, I didn't birth them all. (laughs) I gave birth to only one. But my husband, when he retired from the military, became principal in several high schools in Savannah and in Newport News, Virginia. And each time he would see a kid that needed help in some way, either the parents weren't there for them or they just needed help in in any situation. So that's how we started bringing them in. He would identify them. He'd call me and say, We got another one. Okay, (laughs) bring them on. (laughs) That's the way it was going. (laughs) That just blows my mind. And I've told you this already because, first of all, there's two parts to that. It's the openness of him to make a decision to say, I'm going to do that. But then also for you to be like, okay, 
<laughs> like I, I supervise a foster care program and I will tell you that is the biggest thing because people have to be on the same page. You know, you yeah. can have the biggest plans on, in the world, but if you call your husband or you call your wife and they're not on board, that doesn't make That's any it. sense. Yeah. It doesn't right. make any sense. I mean, you can kind of strong arm people and manipulate them, but you can't care for a child full time every single day and try to bulldoze over somebody else's opinion. And so and I think, that, go I ahead. think that's a, both of our backgrounds too, because in my household and in his, our parents always took in folks who needed help. Um, from the cop, from the education side, for me, students who could not afford to stay on campus lived with us. They went to school. They came home to my house, ate dinner with us. Um, you know, and, and with my husband's family, the same thing. So we grew up knowing that that's the way, that's the way you do it. That's the way you live. You help others. And I think that's the main reason that the 25 kids have come to us. I, well, and I, and I love that because it is, it's this idea of creating a culture of helping those that can't give me anything in return. You mm-hmm. know, I, I mean, and I think, it really speaks to our job in stewarding our kids of, I can tell my children something every single day, but if I'm not living it, they don't see our households, like investing in others and caring for others when there's not one thing that we're going to get in return, that why would they prioritize it when they get older? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's huge. So I want to shift to, so you in, did you integrate your high school? Yes. Okay. So you integrated uh, for high school. There were 14 of us who desegregated from elementary to high school. Um, there were four seniors the year that I desegregated. Um, I forgot how many junior seniors, whatever. Anyway, um, we were there only one year. And I often think about those who started saying, third grade until it completely desegregated. I know what they must have gone through. Um, But what I went through my senior year was really difficult. I mean, I wanted to say what it really was, but you know, (laughs) can't say that. Um, It was tough. Um, That one year, um, the four of us just stuck together and said, we're gonna do this. We're going to do it. And we had police police protection, of course. And, of course, the teachers were uh, trained to accept us, if you want to call it that. Um, they would have us seated either first row near the door. Only one class was I seated alphabetically. This teacher had control of his class. The kids knew he took no stuff. And so that was the only class I really felt that I was a part of a class. And he was also my homeroom teacher, so that helped too. But um, as we went through the year, and as we talked about our experiences, they were all somewhat different. We have one classmate senior who refuses to come back to Orangeburg because of what happened that that year. Um, 
uh, there are three of us that are still pretty close. You know, we call and talk to each other. But having gone through that, that year, everybody says they don't understand how I went through it. Well, because I had parents who could support me. I had God who I knew was on my side. So, you know, it was rough, but I got through it. Um, the one thing that really, really bothered me and still bothers me to this day, um, my grandparents lived next door to us. And of course, they would, they would always tell me stories about what happened to them. But my grandfather lived to see me go to Orangeburg High School. And so while I was there, I kept, you know, every day he'd say, how did it go? What happened? I'd go and report to him, let him know. Well, the day of graduation, the day, the day before graduation, Orangeburg High had a custom of publishing the top 10 students in the graduating class. And that year, my picture came out in that 10. Orangeburg, Heist, Orangeburg um, newspaper, Times and Democrat, of course, when that paper came out, the threats increased tremendously because as a black person in the top 10, this can't be. So when I get to school, there's a sign up, nigga, you better not show up for graduation. Um, one of the students went to pick up their cap and gown, um, tires were flattened. I mean, all sorts of things. Long story short, um, we had planned for my grandparents to attend graduation. And after all of this happened, my mom says, I don't think it'd be safe. So I had to tell them that they couldn't attend graduation. And I mean, that just broke my heart to know that they had waited to see this day and they couldn't attend. So what I did, I put on my cap and gown and you know, went over so they could see me in my graduation attire. And my grandfather looked at me and said, baby, you knew when you started this, this was going to be hard. And you knew that you had God to take you through it. And you did it. So just go to graduation, hold your head up high, and just thank the Lord that it went through. And that's what I did. That's so heartbreaking. And... You know, it makes me think, how much time do you did you spend thinking about the motivations of people who could be so hateful? Huh. And just trying to reconcile it, because I think I try to do that. But is that a fruitless endeavor to sit and go, why? It, and, and, you know, you can see it in the past. I grew up at a time with the KKK burning across near my house, you know, and I was little at the time and I couldn't figure this out. A cross? Why would they set a cross on fire? You know, I'm sitting there, some mom and dad were trying to explain to me what root this was. And I thought, okay, well, I still understand why they're burning a cross. So this is in my mind too. And I keep thinking, okay, later I'll find out why. Well, it still didn't add up. But um Having ex experienced that, you know, at least a lasting impression. I'm sure. A lasting. Yeah, I'm not sure if y'all ever saw this episode. This is very old, um, maybe 30 years old. But Oprah had an episode with the Central Park Nine. 
in, the, yes. in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yes. And when they um, integrated the school and one of my history professors, I think in high school showed it and it was very impactful for me because it was them there with the white students who literally, I mean, these are kids throwing acid on them. I mean, they're like tripping them in the hallway. I mean, literally trying to sometimes didn't care if they lived or died. And some of them saying, I forgive you. And then some of them apologizing. And I really need to watch it again because it's been years. But it really, it just makes you think like, I mean, these two different, these two things, these polar opposite of experiences. One, you're sitting on Oprah's show, who's this very wildly successful African-American woman, apologizing, crying, saying, I'm so sorry. And then this other period of time where you're like throwing acid on me and, and acting as if I'm not human. But you know, you have to re- have to realize too that during that time, kids were doing and acting as their parents. You know, the parents were the one telling them that you don't like black people. You can't live with them. You can't study with them. You can't. So they were just living out what their parents were telling them. So um, my 50th class reunion, I did get an opportunity to go back to Orangeburg High for the 50th class reunion. I wrote an open letter to the newspaper saying, one of the things on my bucket list was to be invited to a class reunion since I'd never been back for a class reunion. Um, The chairman of the uh, reunion committee is a dentist and he read the letter and of course, I had my email address and phone number. So he called and he said, Alice, I want you to know that you will be getting an invitation to our 50th class reunion. So I thought, wow, 50 years later, okay, we'll see how this goes. So he sent the invitation and Zeke and I will, of course, we will go. <laughs> but I said, will we be the only ones? Um, the dentist called me back and said, Alice, do you have contact with the other three who graduated with you? Yes, I do. Would you call them and see if they would be willing to come back? I called them. One was, would come, but she had family reunion. Another <laughs> said, no way, no way will I go back. And the other I guess it was Heidi, who's never been back to Orangeburg since she graduated. Um, you know, I contacted her and she says, no, I'm not coming. I mean, I tried to get the group together even before the 50th, um, but had some difficulty in location where, you know, where we could do it. But this time for the 50th, we went to the reunion I mean, they were so glad. As a matter of fact, we walked in, and he's the first. Zeke is the one that's direct. Hi, Zeke. And I'm going, he didn't go to Orangeburg. Hi, how you know? <laughs> but um, anyway, we sat and we talked. And we, I did have a few who came over, I mean, to apologize deeply, to say that, you know, we're so sorry that we had that type of experience for you. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to see how culture shifts, public opinion shifts. And and then also, like you said, 
as you grow up, you're autonomous from your parents and can think differently than them. Um, but that's just such a hard thing to reconcile. Um, and I would love to say that I would have been like you, but I don't know that I would because I think even for you to write that letter is brave and it's sort of just something most people wouldn't even think to do. You wrote a letter, like an open letter and then went by yourself. I mean, you went with your husband, but you didn't have the other people that were at school with you and you had a horrifying experience. It's not yeah. like the butterflies was just flying around and everything <laughs> was going good for you. Yeah. I, I think, is that where forgiveness plays a role, you think? Like, big, 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 big role. I forgave even the first day that I went to school to desegregate Orangeburg High. Again, this is from Bible, from teachers, from parents, that I had to forgive them. I had to. And so for some of us, it was really hard, really hard. But I forgave the kid who tried to cut, not try, cut a picket sign off my neck. You know, I had another, um, oh, Alice, one of the guys who was on the picket line, I mean, he just freaked out. You know, this guy came up with a knife near my neck to cut the sign off. And I had to calm him down. So, Alice, I'm not hurt. He didn't touch me. Just leave it alone. So we had to get him back, you know, on track. But some people can take it and some can't. I understand that. But um, yeah, I have to hand it to my husband because he and the coordinators knew who could take it and they knew who couldn't. So they had them do something else. That it just it just blows my mind, and I just think, for me, from hearing you, it all goes back to family. Like it all goes back to that secure base. I'm loved. I have a purpose. It's not all about me. But I can also, despite every horrible thing that's happened to me, I can still live free. Like I can mm-hmm. still have freedom every single day after that. And I think that is huge. And I think the vast majority of people cannot live like that. That's it. That's it. Man, that blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> it just does. Okay. So let's move from. <laughs> I'm probably going to think about that for like two weeks. So, so then you graduate from high school. Okay. Then what's next? So you go, what happens? Well, of course, college is next. And I put in my application to four or five colleges and me saying, whoever accepts me, that's where I'm going. The first acceptance, that's where I'm going. When you believe the first acceptance was University of South Carolina. Whoa! No, no. I've been through this once. No, not now. Skip that one. Then the second was Boston University. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And then I thought, how often would my parents pay for me to come home? Uh, I don't think I'm going to do that one. And the third one was Morgan State in Baltimore. Well, I felt real secure because my sister and brother had gone to Morgan. So, yeah, I'd just be following in their footsteps. 
Well, I had a what was a provisional, conditional acceptance. And I said to my dad, what does this mean? He says, the number of arrests you have on your record, you got to get it cleared before they'll accept you. I said, but that's a predominantly black college. Right. My my dad explained, but it's also a state-supported school. Oh, yes. (laughs) So I had to have my my record cleared. And once I did that, then they accepted me. So that's why I went to Morgan. So I was... would you believe that they were having demonstrations at Morgan in Baltimore when I got there? Yeah. It's like, what, <laughs> what are y'all doing? Can y'all look at my record and see? And then at this point, are you only 18 years old? Yeah. That's so, it. So I just put this together. All these arrests happened when you were in high school and you were on a yeah. picket line. That is yes. insane. Was that, was so that wasn't a juvenile record. It was an adult record. I'm not sure how they did that. See, I don't remember what they did. You want to chime in? He don't want to chime in. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, this is your interview. No, but yeah. So you got arrested that many times in high school. I just think about the fact that like the fortitude and you hadn't even been to college yet. You weren't even like gone from home yet. So you leave and go to Morgan State, who it was provisional because I'm like, you just told us that you were at the top of your class. So it's like, who else do y'all want? Like, who else, who else do y'all want? Um, so you go there and your brother and sister went there, but they're a lot older than you. So how was that? What was your experience like in college? It was great, first of all, because let me back up. my sister lived in Annapolis, Maryland. So I had family nearby. So it wasn't like I was leaving home completely, even though we didn't talk that often. Only if I needed money, I'd call her. (laughs) (laughs) But um, the experience was great. I mean, I had some fantastic teachers at Morgan um, and some good experiences. It was a a good college experience. That's good. So anything that stands out from college um, that was a big experience for you or something that you learned? Mm. This is going to really sound weird. I dated the same guy, (laughs) the same guy who put me in jail um, four years through high school and long distance four years in college. And I kept thinking, eight years, how can I do that? Long distance relationship. It was a commitment. I mean, I must have really loved him. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. He was, he was three years ahead of me in school. So when I was a freshman, he was a senior. And then, of course, he went into service, commissioned. So he was gone. And I thought that this is a real, real true test because this is, I think, the guy I'm going to marry, but I've got four years apart. How is this going to work? It worked out well. Um, And with his military career, I mean, that was, you know, something that he had looked forward to. And I thought, okay, I can do it if necessary. Um, So the four years at Morgan, was getting my degree in English journalism, 
I wanted to be a journalist and got accepted with the United Press International. So that was going to be my career. Well, he was in service. We got married one week after I graduated from college. And we had one month before he left for Vietnam. So he convinced my parents and convinced his parents to convince me to move back home <laughs> while he was um, in Vietnam. And in retrospect, that was the best move that could have happened because I could not have handled what he went through if I were away from the family. Um, he was shot down while he was in Vietnam. I was working at the same university where my parents worked, having lunch every day with his mother. One vicious cycle <laughs> for one year. <laughs> but it worked out. It worked out. Oh, it sounds like that was a, a smart decision. I mean, it's just, it, it's so hard to imagine what African-Americans in this country must have gone through to have the civil rights movement, all these things, um, you know, segregation and all these things that you almost had to claw to achieve. Um, and then get sent to Vietnam and many times families affected, um, you know, the trauma that you see over there compounding all the trauma that you had in your own country. Um, what was what was that like? What was the culture like around that? Around the war and race, I guess politics at the time. Like, what was your yeah. sense back then? Well, being back in Orangeburg, I had one girlfriend whose husband was also in Vietnam. So, you know, we sort of compared notes. On my wall was a map of Vietnam. And of course, keeping up with the news, I could pinpoint what was happening where. And the more I thought about it and realized why I was not doing what I thought I wanted to do in journalism, it had been mentioned to me before that if I go into journalism at this time in my life with a husband who's going to Vietnam, can you handle it? How could you handle that reporting? And in retrospect, I said, I'm glad that that did not happen because I had enough to think about you know, his safety um, being in Orangeburg. But during that whole year, as I said, I had a map. I followed the news. I was trying to figure out what was going on. I had it not even a third or a quarter as bad as he did, I know, in Vietnam. But it was, it was really tough, tough to be separated and just trying to imagine what's going on. How many years was that that y'all were apart when he was in Vietnam? One year, one year. One whole year, okay. So I told him, I don't count that year's marriage because <laughs> he was gone. Right. <laughs> he was gone. So then he comes home from the war um, and I'm sure that kind of like what you're saying, it had to just be sort of an anxious type of time. I mean, you don't know what's going on on the other side of the world. Um, like you can try to piecemeal it with the news. Then you got like, the sentiment of the country and like what everybody else thinks and feels and all those kind of things. That's another story. Um, so yeah. How, what, what happens then he comes home and, and what does life look like? Well, it gets interesting because now I'm going to start living as a military wife. 
something I really never really thought about because I wanted to be me and do my thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> this thing was, yes, this thing was, I reserve the right to tell you when you can be you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that first year, we, we decided how many children we wanted to have. Um, I said three. We had one. So the three became 25 others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But from Orangeburg, then we moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So that was my first first time being a military wife. And after 27 years, we stayed together. <laughs> you skipped over a whole lot of stuff <laughs> in them 27 years. And I feel like we're probably going to have to do a part two because there's no way we're probably going to get into all the other stuff. But I just want to say, first of all, I want you to speak into this because you told me this the last time we talked. You guys are just very unique in that you seem like very purposeful people. Um, you say, okay, we're going to do this or these are the things that we're going to prioritize. And then you just seem to be this brave, courageous, like I'm going to do what I can within the context of where I am. So if that means I'm a military wife and this is what I can do and this is what I'm, you know, if that means I'm living in Orangeburg because my husband's in Vietnam, these are the things I'm going to prioritize. Where does that come from? Like, where, where does that, that sense of um, purpose come from? That's a good question. A real good question. First of all, I got to know me. I've got to know myself. Um, God first and then me. But where does that come from? That's a good question. Because I talked about this the last time I talked to you about even with women, we didn't even cover that. Some of these aspirations you had, even you didn't even get into being a librarian and getting your advanced degree and those kind of things. In that generation, and I know this from talking to my great grandmother and people in my pat in, in in that are older in my family, people didn't have that sort of this is what I'm gonna do. You know, like there, that was not a thing. It was kind of like, what does my husband say I'm going to do? What did my parents say I was going to do? And, and your life was sort of not your own. Yeah. Well, we made sure when we talked about um, careers and in the military, he knew that I, would, I wanted to work and I was going to work. So we were on the same sheet of music with that. Um, after I got my master's, that's when I went into librarianship. But it was a deal. When I think about our first child was born at Fort Sill, um, we moved to Atlanta when he was three months old. Zeke was at Georgia Tech, and he knew that I wanted to go to grad school. Originally, I told him I would not get married until after I got my master's, but that didn't work out. So after, I think it was about six months, um, we talked about it again, and he said, okay, this is going to be an investment, you know, with a lieutenant paying for his wife to go to school to get her master's. 
He paid for the first summer. And then I got a fellowship through through the library. So that worked out. So my master's was paid for. That helped tremendously. Still with a little baby and going to school. That was interesting. I mean, that's the first time I'd ever done it. But we made sure that we had a place that our son would be safe. Um, we found University Plaza, real, really, really a good school. And the first time we took him, because I think it was 18 months old, they would take him. My son has always been big for his age. He's now 6'11". But anyway, he, when he started... Wait a, wait a minute, he's 6'11"? Are you serious? Today, today yes, he's 6'11". <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anybody that tall in my life. <laughs> well, he, of course, he was tall for his age, even at three months, I guess. Anyway, they tried him on a week for a week trial, and he did everything they needed. They wanted him to be being potty trained and eating from the table. Well, we started him on that early. So after that week, they said, he's ready. So that's where he went to school. The deal was my dropping him off, my going to school, Zeke going to school, Zeke picking him up. We had a routine and we worked it out. We worked it out. Y'all are just amazing. Well, I mean, that's how you could probably describe your whole life. We worked it out. That's it. God's first. Make sure that he's the first one in line. Well, I want to... <laughs> My mind is blown. So I want to like end this and do another, hopefully prayerfully do another episode where we talk about maybe the second part of your life and pick up where we stop. But I know the last time I saw y'all, y'all talked about this book. Is it Red Sea Rules? Is that what y'all called it? Okay. I have it in my Amazon card. I, I didn't, I didn't purchase okay, it. Red, yeah. Red Sea Rules. So that book is about hard times, right? And, and kind of, persevering yes and it has chapters the first one is know that you're where god wants you to be you are where he wants you to be right now and then it goes from there with the rules and it is so applicable to to today's life Anything that's going on, you can find a rule that will cover that. So y'all have, from what y'all said, you've given that book to I don't know how many people. What yeah. are you looking for them to get from it? What's the number one thing you'd be looking for them to get from that book? <sighs> Guidance. I think that's the main thing. Guidance and knowing that the connection with God and you, I mean, everything is connected. And that book spells it all out. Well, it sounds like with your life, everything is connected. And it sounds like there's been time after time where you could have took something that was extremely hard and went the other direction. But instead, when I talk to you, every time you're like, life's great. I'm blessed. Everything's wonderful. Um, 
how how do you connect all that stuff? How how do you um, reconcile everything that's happened in your life and still get there? I feel that every day God has put me where I need to be for whatever is happening. Nothing happens by chance. So anything that happens, I know that there's a purpose. God's will will be done. And all I have to do is live it. That's so good. It sounds so simple, but that is not simple. That is not simple. It's something I have to tell myself every single day of it's this dependence that I have to have on God. And when you have that, what you're saying all makes sense. It all ties together. Absolutely. That's so good. That's so good. Miss Alice, thank you so much. I think this is a good stopping point, but I really appreciate you talking to me today. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about some stuff that you said for like the next week or two. Because <laughs> it, it, it was so good. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Created the Podcast. It is my absolute joy to record episodes and talk about calling, purpose, but most of all, Jesus. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review. God bless, and we'll see you next week.